Hello and welcome to From the Trenches, the Business Examiner podcast. Today's episode features Michelle Corfield, Fortis BC board member, former chair and current board member for the Nanaimo Port Authority. She is also the CEO of Corfield and Associates Consulting Services. Michelle is an Indigenous leader who has made a tremendous impact on Vancouver Island, the province of British Columbia and far beyond. We hope you enjoy the conversation we had with her. So uh, my name is Michelle Corfield, and I'm an independent consultant and also a professional board member. In saying that, in about 2009, I went on my own and started my consulting business. Uh, And I did so because I felt that it was time I had served as the vice president of the Neutral Tribal Council for four years, and I had completed my doctorate. So it was time to go and try and spread my wings and find different ways to support First Nations advancing their interests. I'd also spent about 20 years at the treaty table at that time and understood the complications and and limitations around that whole process and why it's so difficult to conclude treaties in British Columbia. Mm -hmm. And can you elaborate on that a little bit? So in 1993, British Columbia, Canada, and the First Nations started the BC treaty process. And at that time, they thought they could get a treaty done in about a year, year and a half. It's a five-stage process. Most First Nations right now, about half of them in British Columbia, so there's 203 First Nations in BC, and about half are engaged in significant treaty negotiations and sitting at about stage four, stage five being the last stage of the negotiation process where you're doing the concluded treaty. And people were getting really stuck in stage four and still are. I wrote my entire doctoral dissertation about the treaty process and about the issues that impact the ability to negotiate a treaty. And so we have a handful of nations in stage five, which is getting ready to conclude. And then we have probably three separate groups, uh, Manitowasan and Tlaiamen that have actual treaties signed under the BC treaty process. So we've got different levels of of people negotiating at different spots. The big, big uh, hurdle I'm going to say is probably elections. Because elections are not timed to to happen. You know, BC is not going to election at the same time as Canada. And every time you have an election, you have about a six month stall because everybody has to get up to speed. And so there's a whole new change in uh, the bureaucracy. So that really is probably one of the biggest hurdles. And then it's about the sharing of power. And at no time in the history of the world has sharing the sharing power, sharing decision-making been an easy subject to talk about. And it's always fraught with lots of arguments and, and it's very cont- contested and con- conflictual and so it's about the sharing of power and understanding what that means and I and I can say right now I am watching a table go through stage five and I've introduced some concepts to them about economic development and self-determination in other ways other than a treaty because if you can grab some of that other economic opportunity and then conclude a treaty you have a nice pairing about how it's going to work into the future and how those relationships are going to end up 
flowing with and working with gov local governments, uh, regional districts, provincial and federal governments. So that's really starting to take shape and you're seeing that a lot of nations now are really getting involved in economic development, especially land-based development. It wasn't a planned question, but the kind of the difference between the power of the heredity, hereditary chiefs and then the elected officials, does that also play into that election cycle or is that a separate yes. issue? No, First Nations elections impact negotiation just as much as uh, provincial or federal negotiation. The only thing with the hereditary system that you have is stability and governance on the First Nations side. And we have very few nations that are solely uh, run by traditional governments. And it is in that hereditary system that the title and rights are, are vested. It's because of that traditional governance system that holds those that vested pieces of ability to negotiate. Whereas uh, strictly negotiating from an Indian ban Act ban perspective, you're, you, the Indian Act bans are created as a result of the Indian Act. So they're not true reflections of who the nations were or are, which has created its own set of problems and issues. So yeah, people can't come into working in First Nations communities and working for First Nations without having a a lot of knowledge behind them to understand the complexities and the differences and all the legislative hurdles that Indigenous people in Canada and BC have gone through. Yeah, yeah, no, I can only imagine. And I guess, so when people get through stage or the, the bands get through stage five, what, is that, what does that mean? Do they become, is that sort of like officially they become their own nation? And that's where kind of the, okay. After they ratify their treaty, it means that they have a a government to government relationship with the federal crown and the provincial government, which means the discussions are no longer about the Indian Act applying and being, uh, you're not suppressed under that act and you're not living under that act, you're actually governing from a place of strength and self-determination, which is giving you relationships to be able to do things differently. and. People don't like me to compare a, a municipality to a First Nation, but for purposes of talking, it's about establishing a government structure that sits in between a municipality, the province and the feds. And so it has these, this ability to work with all three parties at a very government to government level. Okay. And they have the ability to make laws. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, I, it is very helpful to know. Um, can you, so going back, you finished your doctorate, you're getting involved in, in consultation. Can you just kind of walk me through a, a couple of the key moments as your, as your career has evolved? A couple of the key moments? Yeah, let's say. I've had, I've had a few key moments. <laughs> I have had the privilege of working on some of the most interesting things that have happened in the province of British Columbia. I was, uh, I helped design, uh, the, the process by which the First Nations uh, got the new relationship trust established, and that was the $100 million, where they come together. So in that facilitated process, it was about looking at ways to have 203 First Nations make a decision at the same time to see the uh, transfer of $100 million into the new relationship trust. I was very, very proud of that work. I'm proud of the work that I, I did um, 
while still as the VP of the Tribal Council, and that was establishing the Vancouver Island Chiefs. And that was to have difficult conversations with government about the slowness and the tough issues that people were grappling with under the treaty process, which evolved into the common table, which took common interests that First Nations had to a new place where discussions were happening in a real way. And one of those uh, immediate um, concerns was the paying back of the treaty loans. And so you're in a non-treaty position because of the government, then you're forced to take out money to pay it, to negotiate with them when the roadblocks that happen are largely in part by them. And so the, the extended periods of time that people are negotiating just is dragged on. So the forgiveness of those loans just came about last year and that was a long time coming, you know, after 27 years. And early on, and I'm just gonna say this is, First Nations weren't really allowed to share and talk to each other. You had, everybody was negotiating in silos. And I think once we broke those silos down, uh, we were able to take big, bigger and larger topics forward and see a more consolidated approach to those, to those issues, which is critically important. It's almost impossible for the governments to negotiate with 203 nations at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, that is interesting to see that evolution because you have these major infrastructure projects coming through BC that impact so many of the different nations and they all kind of have different needs. Um, I had some friends work with the, 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 the failed Enbridge project and a couple of the other ones. And it was just, there's, you know, it was a very challenging situation. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've done, I've worked on a couple national chief campaigns for Sean Atlio. Those were pretty exciting times watching how the actual national politics of First Nations evolve. I also have designed, co-designed an Indigenous Business and Leadership MBA at Simon Fraser University that's in its 12th year. Wow. So I'm pretty proud of that work and how far that that has gotten. And we see that now being, a, it's just going through the Senate at SFU to become a, stand, a standalone program which is a huge, huge step for uh, Indigenous business and leadership because it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Anything that's yeah. really that's really stuck out to you, and it could be a, I mean, it could be a positive or a negative about maybe how how slow or how quickly things have transitioned in certain areas. Or well, I, well, I'll tell you where I'm really happy. What I'm really, really excited about is the this Zoom. I did two degrees um, based on online learning platforms uh, way back when the internet was just becoming popular and uh, people were getting their own computers, you know, big computers in their houses. So for me to see online learning uh, become available to everybody, that's a huge, huge change. And, and I really welcome that because people really didn't understand what I was doing when I was doing it. And I took a lot of flack. And, uh, now they can see it can be done and it, it's actually helpful and saves a lot of time. So that's one of them. The other one is the passing of UNDRIP, right? Canada accepting the United Nations Declaration on Indigenous People. Um, that for me back in the day when we were, when First Nations at the AFM were preparing to give that uh, response to that prior to Canada, Canada hadn't even signed on. I was involved in that, the writing of that. I've written a lot of uh, unity declarations and a lot of uh, 
co, you know, been a part of some very, very significant pieces of uh, responses or approaches to different things, and those stand out for me. Um, what else is standing out? I saving Nanaimo Harbor, but necessarily wasn't necessarily a, a career move, but I own a seafood harvesting company and mm -hmm. I parked my boat was, you know, home port is Nanaimo and we were going to see that uh, be taken away and there would have been no space or place for commercial fishermen or commercial vessels to to land in Nanaimo and have a home, have Nanaimo as a home port. So that happened in about 2012 and since then I've been you know been on i be went on the port board mm -hmm. and i've been there for six years and served as a chair and we still haven't got to where the marina is fully developed in in a way that was intended uh and hoped for mm -hmm. um quite frankly the federal government doesn't provide any money to for marina development so it's a real hindering block because when you open your space your Marina's up for commercial vessels, they're paying a commercial rate, which is not as much as a transient rate, right? They're trying to keep it, that's your business. And so you're trying to keep it safe. And it, so those costs are prohibiting, I guess, the entrepreneurial part of the marina development mm -hmm. because they make, there's concessions made for commercial vessels and, and other industrial vessels. So you see, do you see there being a solution there? I mean, we saw, I think there, we ran a story about a hovercraft manufacturing uh, initiative that's coming up. Is there, are there some other potential solutions that you see to kind of that, that funding gap or? I, well, and anybody who knows me knows that I've been championing uh, Nanaimo as an economic driver for Vancouver Island. That has been my sole purpose uh, on the board for the past six years is to advance the economic opportunities for Nanaimo and Vancouver Island through the port and we are going to see a huge change and it's going to take a little bit more time uh, you know the first five years of any business or any expansion you're really just getting your feet wet but I do see uh, an opportunity for the marina to be done with a partnership and when and if that is crafted, I think you will see something magnificent for Nanaimo. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fantastic. I, I do agree. It's I was born and raised there. And then there's some, a big announcement about the airport expansion too. And so you have kind of, you know, a port, uh, marina expansion plus the airport. And it's just, I can only think good things are going to come from that. And, uh, one of the big things that I'm, I'm super proud of, uh, we seen the change in the industry right with forestry going down and having to pivot the what was the what the mpa was notably known for so we brought in um the car carrier and we now service and have a full full car carrier um process uh, processing auto processing plant that we integrate and then we have the duke point expansion I worked very, very hard in the very beginning on that to try and get government to understand why it was important to invest in Nanaimo. Pleaded with government to invest in Nanaimo. So we've seen the investment in the in the uh, car carriers. And now we've seen a 62, what is it, $62 million invest? No, what did I get? I think it was 62 million. <laughs> uh, 
Holy I had to smokes. say that out loud because I forgot it was a hundred million dollar project. Wow. Um, so we've got 62 million and I, we've just got 15 from the province and with our partners, DP World, uh, that project's going forward. So as the chair of the port, I was very proud to be a part of that. And I'm even more proud to have Donna Hayes now take the reins on that project because that's her wheelhouse. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. We're supposed to be having her on as a guest as well. Um, that's exciting. Michelle, thank you very much for sharing that. It's nice to see my hometown uh, have so much excitement yeah, going this on. Is, this is exciting, and I don't think people will get to understand how exciting it is until they see it fully built out and functional. But from the baby seed that it was to what it is now, it's so amazing. I want to quickly ask you a question about Undrip. Um, you know, I, I think it's one of those things that, you know, there's a lot of uh, maybe a lack of knowledge about, um, it, you know, can you talk about maybe what the sentiments that you're hearing, because maybe between industry, government, and then the First Nations partners? So I I'm have no problem saying nobody really understands what UNDRIP means and the application of UNDRIP. We can talk about all of these wonderful ideas and principles and values that UNDRIP brings along, but nobody has said, this is what it means. This is the definition of this declaration. We see, you know, BC wrote some legislation. That legislation is pretty much still um, undefined as to what it means. And Canada right now has a piece of legislation on the floor uh, similar, like trying to bring Canada up to these these minimum standards is what I'm going to say. However, First Nations themselves don't know what UNDRIP means in the sense of how does it applied um, for the majority, right? There's people running around. I know lots of people that have ideas and expectations of UNDRIP and, and are trying to make that work. But for the most part, First Nations living in community don't really and haven't had the opportunity to fully understand what it means. And then for industry, their industry is plagued in the sense that they're expected to know all of this stuff. They're expected to be able to make relationships and they're expected to do all of these things. And yet there's no tools to help them. Nobody says to industry, when you're an entrepreneur, you're just trying to keep your own business alive. You're not thinking about how to advance somebody else's business when you've invested your entire you know life and life savings into a project and then you're expected to go and consult with first nations you know that isn't what you're thinking about as an entrepreneur so helping nations and industry understand that everybody has something to learn about undrip nobody is the expert there are no experts on this legislation you know in 10 years we'll have uh I hope we still have professors writing just uh, lots of uh, peer-reviewed journal articles and things about this stuff. But right now, it's just so fresh. And I, for industry, they're trying to, you know, consultation, accommodation, all of those things that you would not expect uh, to have to happen at a at an industry level in Canada. They have to happen, and so that needs a lot of work and a lot of massage and I think and I can talk about this look at Enbridge for example it failed because of the I think it was a lack of understanding and uh, 
ability for First Nations to grapple their, you know, First Nations and Enbridge itself to see what they needed to do. And now you've got major projects coalition up in the north. They're doing some really big things um, with industry. You have the Trans Mountain Pipeline, although it's contested by a few nations still, for the most part, many nations have impact benefit agreements with them. I, I have worked on a project um, that has seen best in class environmental standards uh, implemented. And I have no problem saying that it's best in class. I've watched it myself. I, you know, I have a bit of understanding of the environment. I wrote a toolkit in 2015, understanding the environmental uh, processes in Canada, which we have two for one for BC, one for Canada. And so knowing that we see industry trying to make strides and better accommodate First Nations, it's very helpful. I think we're moving a long way from where we were, where it was everybody protesting everything. I think we're seeing First Nations now grapple with the opportunities to get involved in the economy in ways they've never seen before. I know we have First Nations right now looking at and thinking about purchasing the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Mm -hmm. So how far we have come. <laughs> what do you think about that? I, I read, I mean, I read a couple of stories and I, the ones that I read, they were looking for, 50, I think 51%. And I don't, I couldn't understand if it was a conglomerate of, of different nations that were looking to buy in. What do you, what do you think is going to be the end result of that? Do you think that's very likely? So I was I advised on one of the groups that's trying to put it put the deal to one of one of the deals together. There's many of groups trying to do. Yeah, they're trying to bring a conglomerate of First Nations together to uh, build a a company to be the purchasers of it. So in conjunction, most likely with another company like Trans Mountain hasn't always been owned by Canada. Trans Mountain's been owned by Fortis. Trans Mountain's been owned by a lot of people in its life. And most people don't know that. Pipelines change hands quite frequently. And so I hope we're successful in finding a solution because once we see First Nations involved in the Canadian economy in a real way, we're not going to have the, the continuous friction, I think, that we see now Right. We have First Nations communities that have no water. We have First Nations community living in destitute situations. And I think once we find ways to sort that out and, and pr provide opportunities for full participation in the economy, things will change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, I think one of the themes that I've appreciated that you've talked about is just like how long things have taken, like you expected the treaties to go, you know, a year and now they're, they're taking a long time. And I think, you know, I, I obviously I can't speak for anybody else, but I always am like, okay, what are the goalposts? Where are we going? How do we get this done? And that's, that's just how I think, but that's just not realistic in most situations in life in general. And this is no different. And so it's just sort of recognizing that there's some patience uh, that needs to happen. And then it's just a completely different, you know, it's a hard thing for a lot of people to relate to. Oh, I mean, we're at what the third, just about 30 years from the starting of the process i would look at it too if i was from the outside going what the heck are we doing how come this is taking so long and it can only get sped up if canadians say or british Columbians say we're tired of this taking too long we need to find solutions 
And this is like the push has to come from Canadian, uh, British Columbians. And I think we've seen that when the referendum happened uh, under the, when Gordon Campbell was our premier. Mm-hmm. And that gave some pretty go- broad guidelines as to, yes, First Nations are going to be self-governing, right? So we have seen can, uh, British Columbians step up. And I think if anyone actually knew how long these takes, they would, they would be uh, not too happy. Yeah, no, it's all good. It's just, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I've got three quick questions to ask you to, to wrap this up. Um, but sort of on the personal side, one is um, the single best advice that you've been given personally or professionally. Uh, follow the money. Okay. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Uh, whenever there's a problem or an issue, find out who benefits. Okay. So who benefits? That's, I ask that every day. Who's benefiting? <laughs> okay, I like and that. And that's generally the source of where your biggest issue is. Okay. Uh, advice to people who are looking to build a network and maybe work as a consultant in the future. You've got, you know, a deep network, you know, um, how, how have you been able to kind of grow that and stay consistent and, and continue to grow? I have been able to grow my network because I have put myself out there in different situations and taken personal risks to advance issues uh, that no one would have ever brought together. I just developed a Marine Roundtable for all the Marine sector in, in British Columbia. And as a result of that, we were able to influence how some investment went into marine training in British Columbia. And I hope at one point, the rest of it will be implemented and that's the environmental side. So it's about being able to know your strengths and know what's in your wheelhouse and take those and use them for your best benefit. I, yeah, I have a massive uh, network of people but I've sat at the College of Physicians and Surgeons. I was the first non medical doctor to chair registration that was responsible for registering doctors in British Columbia. I've, I've taken some pretty crazy steps and turns and I think that's been a benefit. So always look to grow and to learn. And I think when you do that, you create opportunities for yourself because just COVID is an example. Uh, I could no longer do what I normally do. And I was fortunate enough because I'm a facilitator mostly. Like I like to facilitate. That was really a big part of my practice. I was fortunate enough to be appointed to the Fortis board. Yeah, I saw that. And that's a big, big deal. I'm the first indigenous person to do that. And I am very proud of the fact that I sit on the board of Fortis. I love the work that Fortis does and I get to do that for eight years and I don't have to do much else. <laughs> that's fantastic. Do you right? have, like, I don't have to like, that's it. I can be happy, really, really happy um, with my professional board stuff that I do. Yeah. Do you have something specific that you'd like to accomplish while you're there? Yeah. But are you allowed to my, elaborate on that? My goal is not, I'm not going to accomplish it at Fortis, but it's about spreading my wings and learning new things. I know nothing about gas. Uh, my goal is to become a senator. Wow. So 
that's the goal. That's phenomenal. Well, and you would think, because you were a candidate for the, the Liberal Party in Nanaimo, so you certainly put in your time uh, among yeah. many other places. Two times in one year I ran. Oh my goodness. It's like a whole year of campaigning. But yeah. uh, I learned a lot. And that was the best experience of my life. Being a Liberal candidate was the best experience of my life. Yeah. Just from from kind of seeing where maybe where your support came from in places you didn't expect? Or is there was something else that stuck out? It was the complete uh, embrace, been, being embraced by the party and being embraced by the leader and supported by the leader, who is the prime minister, mm-hmm. and the people that came. Yeah, it was, it was amazing how people stepped up to support me that I'd never met. And I got to do and talk to a lot of people about issues that matter most in British, in British Columbia, but primarily in Nanaimo. And my big one was the environment and the economy. Mm-hmm. And it's those still are my two number one objectives. The economy in Nanaimo matters, and it matters to all of us who've grown up here and who want to live here. And the environment matters because we all want to share in a really healthy environment. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Very last thing I wanted to ask you, Favorite restaurant on Vancouver Island? Ooh, well, you guys are gonna laugh, but um, I like to go to Ricky's. Hey, no, no judgment like for me. I like to go to Ricky's and hang out with my friends, and I'll tell you why. Okay. I look out at the ocean right now at, at, from my home, and Ricky's has a beautiful ocean view, and the staff there are amazing and accommodating, and yeah. That's my favorite place to go. Thanks for stopping by this episode of From the Trenches, the Business Examiner podcast. We really appreciate Michelle taking the time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. Her social and web links will be included in the description uh, of this video or podcast, however you are choosing to consume this. Uh, We will see you next week.